BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. So I have a question for you. How should the crime of weaponizing a virus for political purposes be punished? How do we react to this? I mean, Trump's rally in Tulsa this weekend is moving the RNC down to Florida specifically so that they can pack an audience filled with people yelling, screaming, no masks, you know, jammed in. What these things prove, these two events that that Trump has, you know, these two decisions that he has made in the past week, is that he's willing to allow Americans to die. In fact, he's willing to take proactive actions that will cause Americans to die in order to get his ego stroked and increase his chances of getting reelected. Or at least he thinks that it's going to help his chances of getting reelected. Now, you know, there's this new book out by Trump's niece, and pieces of this are starting to leak out right now, suggesting that his nephew, his brother's child, had cerebral palsy. Very expensive medical treatments necessary for cerebral palsy. When Donald was negotiating with his brother and sister over slicing up his father's estate, he cut off the medical payments to his nephew with cerebral palsy, in order to force that family to give Donald a larger chunk of daddy's inheritance. At least according to Donald's niece right now. So you've got two data points here. Number one, Trump is willing to kill people to get reelected or put people in situations where they're going to die. Number two, he was willing to threaten his own nephew with the possibility of death in order to get more money. And then number three, scientists report that if 80% of Americans simply wore masks, and by the way, this has been demonstrated in Japan, which did not shut down. They closed their schools. That was it. People still went to work. If 80% of the population wears masks, the transmission rate of this virus goes below one, that R0 number. In other words, one person doesn't infect one other person. One person infects eight-tenths of a person or seven-tenths of a, you know, ten people only infect seven people. And as a result, over time, the virus dies out and goes away. If 80% of Americans wore masks, 
we would be in a situation right now where the virus would be dying out and going away, as, ha as has happened in, in Japan over the last five months. If Trump had reacted to the coronavirus the same way that South Korea did in January, on January 20th, they got their first case the same day we got our first case. Or even if he had reacted like, like Australia did in February or New Zealand or most of Northern Europe, there would be at least 60 or 70,000 Americans who are dead who, would other, who today would instead be alive. I mean, this is, this is, I don't think Americans know this, right? I was talking yesterday about people in Australia and how, uh, you know, they're, they're wearing masks when they go out. It was, I, I guess, an assumption on my part or old news. I got a note from one of our listeners in Australia, tip of the hat, Katie, thank you very much for sending this. Uh, she says, uh, just a quick note to update you on our COVID status here in Australia. You mentioned Monday that uh, Australians don't go out without masks on. Well, thankfully, that is now old news. Western Australia, where we are, and the rest of the states, Western Australia is a state, by the way. Uh, sometimes referred to as WA. Uh, Western Australia, where we are, and the rest of the states, all of whom maintain similar reopening stages, stopped requiring masks about two months ago. My husband and I, who are being supremely cautious due to our age, would feel quite odd leaving the house with a mask on at this point. However, folks are still standing in line at shops at, at the 1.5 meter marks, uh, six feet, which were used before, and every store has disinfectant at the entrance and the counter. She adds, Australia seems to be moving in the direction of New Zealand, which had its first rugby match this weekend, complete with stands filled with cheering, happy Kiwis. Why? Testing and contact tracing. They're crushing the virus. They don't even need masks anymore in Australia. They've reached that threshold. We are not even talking about that threshold. We've got a full-blown pandemic, epidemic inside the United States going on, and now you've got scientists talking about this is going to become endemic, which means it's always here, it never goes away. At the same time that other countries are getting rid of this damn virus. And now on top of this, you've got Donald Trump and Eugene Scalia, our labor secretary, working together to cut off unemployment benefits to millions of America's most poorly paid but most at-risk workers in order to force them back to work. Trump doesn't care how bad the epidemic gets. He doesn't care how many people die. As long as the deaths happen in the weeks and months immediately after the election. And in that regard, I think he may have mistimed this, frankly. But every other country in the world that is not run by a strong man and has a functioning government is right now executing a specific plan to protect their citizens from this deadly virus. And the Trump and the Republicans are not only ignoring the need for a plan, they're actively working against the advice of their own scientists, putting politics and Donald Trump's ego above the lives of American citizens. And this is cruel. This is willful brutality. This policy that Donald Trump and Eugene Scalia are pushing, I think it's shocking. The rest of the world is looking at us with horror. And yet the GOP, the Republican Party, seems to think, oh, it's just fine. No complaints, no criticism. Ron DeSantis couldn't figure out how to put a mask on. The governor of Florida, he put it on sideways. You know, the, the guy who's in charge of the coronavirus task force, Mike Pence, won't wear a mask. 
Some of these Republican strategists, at least one has come right out in public and said, well, you know, 70% of Republicans are willing to go out in public without a mask and they're not afraid of the virus. That's only true of about 30% of Democrats. So let's hold our elections and force people to go to the polls. The Democrats won't show up. And apparently that idea has become like official Republican ideology because you've got states like Texas and Florida who are saying, vote by mail? Hell no. We're not going to let our citizens vote by mail. So what we're watching right in front of our own eyes is weaponizing a virus for political purposes. And, you know, and let's not forget another piece of this is the Republicans pointing out, and this all started on April 7th, right? The day that the Washington Post, and the New York Times said, black people are getting hit by this virus more than white people. And all, literally the next day, right across the board, you had the billionaire groups, you know, Freedom Works and the other right-wing groups saying, time to open America. You had these white militia guys showing up in state capitals, time to open America. It's only black people dying. So, hey, I want, I want my hair cut. I want somebody to bring me my meal. This crime against humanity is being committed right in front of our eyes. And it's being committed against our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and our family members. So what should be the punishment for weaponizing a coronavirus for political purposes? How do we deal with this? Is it just going to be sending Republicans to defeat in November? Or do you think this is going to work the way Richard Nixon weaponized race in 1968 and Reagan did it in 1980? This is the Tom Hartman Program. For that matter, how H.W. Bush weaponized race with his Willie Horton ads. It beat Michael Dukakis. Is it going to work again? Congressman Ro Khanna is with us. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th District of California, Silicon Valley, and the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at Rep Ro Khanna. And Congressman Khanna, welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts on this moment in time. There's so much happening. When you sort through it all, what bubbles to the top in your mind? Well, Tom, I appreciate being on. Obviously, the issues of racial justice are first and foremost. And in fact, I've been quite inspired to see people in the streets, the movement across the country. It hasn't let up. It has been sustained. It has led to things like my PSAC, which only had 22 co-sponsors for a year, which I did with Lacey Clay, saying we need to change the standard of force in this country. I mean, can you believe we're still being governed by William Rehnquist's ghost of reasonable standard that is totally different than what every other Western democracy has, which is force can only be a last resort. So that finally got a markup in the Judiciary Committee. We're moving on a lot of uh, other bills that the Congressional Black Caucus has put forward. None of these were moving in the past. And that's because, not because of any of us in Congress, it's because people are out in the streets. I hope they stay out there. I hope this becomes one of those moments that we're really going to see progress for racial justice. 
Yeah. It certainly seems like, you know, the old Overton window has shifted and that there's no going back. I mean, the, we saw this with gay marriage. We saw this with the Me Too movement and the treatment of women. Now we're seeing it with the treatment of African-Americans. And I think more broadly, over time, over the next years, or maybe a year even, this is going to broaden out to include Hispanics and Native Americans and, you know, people of other Indian ancestry, Asian ancestry, things like that. Your thoughts on that, and then we'll pick up phone calls here. Well, I completely agree with you. I mean, I was inspired by Tanezi Coates, who in the past has been pretty pessimistic about the condition of race in this country and said that being a black man doesn't give him much hope. And I saw an interview of his where he said this is the first time in his life that he's really felt hope. And he's seen that he put in white Republican women in, in suburbs in certain places were protesting along with African-Americans. And so I think that there is something different about these protests. I think there is something that's going to come about in a major way. It feels to me something like me too, or as you put it, gay marriage, but even addressing something so deep or original sin, right? I mean, if you have 250 years of slavery followed by 100 years of Jim Crow, that's 350 years of blacks being treated and thought of as less than, and then you just have a 50 years of the civil rights tradition, you can understand the toll that's taken on the American psyche. And this seems to be a step in, the, in, in a very constructive direction. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you. So let's pick up some phone calls here. Ramon in San Francisco, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, Congressman, I wish you could pass a law that it would make sure that the cops that work in certain community live there. Because in the 1981s, I remember that I was brutalized by the police department in San Francisco. My wife got her arm broken. And as I was riding the police car in the back seat with my wife with a broken arm and we were handcuffed, I told them, you know, I come from El Salvador and you remind me, I say, of the fascist in El Salvador. Because at that time, there was a brutal dictatorship up there. And they said, no, we are not fascists. We are Nazis. And there were two white cops, a lady driving, and I remember the shades. They looked like Pinochet. That's horrible. So my question is, can you pass laws to make sure that the cops that represent the community live in our community so they know us and they don't take us like garbage? That's my question. Thank you, Ramon. Well, I think that the issue that you raise is one of over-policing and the excessive use of force and police really exceeding their mandate. And the, the reality is for most Americans, the interaction with the police tends to be fairly peaceful. Right? Most people are they're pulled over for a ticket or they ask an officer for direction. But for black community, for brown communities, for people in certain neighborhoods, the police are seen as the problem, the challenge, the threat. And what we have to do is figure out how we, through de-escalation and community policing, have people in communities that have been uh, discriminated against feel that the uh, police are empowering and a resource as opposed to there to be surveillance and a threat. Shay in Jacksonville, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yes, good afternoon. I just wanted to ask, what strategies does the leadership in particular, the Democratic leadership, have in place to address some of these inflammatory moves that Trump is making? He's supposed to come here to Jacksonville August 27th and then in Tulsa next week. My suggestion is next week that we ignore him because we know 
that uh, in terms of trying to go and protest there, because we know they're trying to uh, start some type of civil war. So we don't engage them that way. We celebrate love. We celebrate our freedoms. And, And then in August, when he comes here, you know, I think that there needs to be some type of plan in place to deal with these things. So could you please speak to that? Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I, I think it's a real challenge. I mean, the president's numbers have dropped. He's at 39, 40% approval, and he's desperate. And so he is, I think this next four months are, are going to be very ugly. Uh, he doesn't care about COVID. He's going into places like Florida, even though there's huge spikes in Florida and Arizona and Texas. I mean, I can't believe that he's going to be going to Oklahoma on uh, Juneteenth, where of course, the Tulsa riots happened. I mean, there you had a situation of the African-American community finally creating wealth in the uh, early 1900s. And basically, because of their success, people in Tulsa assaulted them and teared down everything that they had built. And then on to deliberately go on Juneteenth, which is the day of uh, uh, emancipation uh, to Tulsa, that, that's not an accident. It reminds me of what Reagan did when he went to Mississippi. And so this president is going to be going around stoking fear and trying to get his base to turn out because he knows he's lost independence and his only strategy is to get more of his base to turn out. How do we respond to that? We have to call him out. We have to call out the racism clearly. We have to be vigilant and know that we're in the, the battle of our lives. You know, he's trying to troll us on the one hand, and I think we, you know, we need to call that out and point it out, particularly around these dates. Russell in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, Congressman. Uh, good. Um, this was serendipity. I didn't think this would happen. So I'm just a few blocks away from the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And I've had this thought for a while that because of the pandemic, that we are beyond mail-in voting, that we should really move toward mobile phone voting, because as a culture, it would get more people to vote. To, to move into phone voting, right? Yeah, online voting. Yeah. I, look, I think we can do it. I mean, Estonia has done it. Uh, they do online voting. The challenge is we need to have safeguards. I mean, whether you have a paper ballot in some way or paper generation to, 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 to make sure that it's not being abused. I think the, the challenge for us is if we're just doing it online, how do you assure security and not, things aren't being hacked? Uh, and Estonia is a much smaller country that, that's managed to do it. But I, I agree with you, with you that we should be working uh, towards that. Richard in Bellevue, Washington, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Well, thanks for taking my call, Tom. And Congressman Kana, it's good to go ahead and speak to you again. You are my son's representative, and they are very appreciative of oh. your work for us. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I Congressman- appreciate that, Richard. Uh, Congressman Kana, I want to ask you what the uh, the Democratic coalition, the Progressive coalition, uh, the, um, is doing about the very looming and, to me, very real threat of the election fraud in November that is that is going to um, overwhelm our democracy. Um, I'm I, I'm really feeling that much of much of the electoral pieces are already in place for this this election to be turned into the uh, turned into the final nails for this juggernaut to continue to roll over and crush us and i'm fearing that only john roberts only john roberts can 
can eventually be the uh, preventative. I, I'm lost for words. Yeah. Well, Richard, I, I think you made your point very well. I mean, you look at what happened in Georgia and you think, okay, if they're willing to do that uh, in uh, primary elections, uh, what are they going to do in November? And uh, I, I think Vice President Biden is right when he says uh, that the biggest threat is that they uh, try to play games by denying people the right to vote uh, to win. Look at Wisconsin. I mean, the Supreme Court justice, conservative justice who lost, uh, is now uh, going to be hearing the case to disenfranchise basically 200,000 voters. And this is why the polls, we can't get false confidence from them, because if, if first of all, the race will tighten. And secondly, if even if it up seven, eight points, uh, when you look at this, their efforts of systematic disenfranchisement, uh, that's what they're banking on. And so what can we do? We need to be uh, we need to have an army of people uh, at polling uh, at polling places or ready to protect polling places, ready to fight for vote by mail. Uh, you know, this party is suing Arizona right now. There are a lot of plays that we're going to be active in Wisconsin. I mean, we need a legal strategy. And it's, we're in a new fight for voting rights in this country. Amen. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Ro Khanna, representing the 17th District of California and the vice chair or a vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, one of the big cheese, one of the top progressives in the U.S. House of Representatives. We'll be right back with more of your calls for Congressman Khanna. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. 
Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Harbin. Uh, this is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, no push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, 
Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election, torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times. His growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern Internet, for example. The main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up. And other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. Michael in Bronx, New York, here on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, Tom. Hi, Congressman. Got an interesting question. With all this talk, with all this discussion and the concerns of police abuse, and then you have Trump constantly saying that there's no um, systemic racism. There's no, um, just a few bad apples. It's just an isolated incident. Can you, in rebuttal, just suggest for everyone to go back 25 years ago to the trial of the century when an infamous detective named Mark Furman is on the recording using the N-word and boasting about doing these atrocities towards the same N-word that he's been targeting. Because he's boasting it before the trial of the century, and then when you look at between then and now, we're seeing the very same scenarios, the same atrocities, and the same targets. That should be proof enough and a good rebuttal, correct? Well, look, I, I agree with you. I think what happened in the past is that uh, there was explicit racism and we didn't have video cameras and we didn't have phones. And so uh, the racism wasn't exposed. And now uh, we probably just have scratched the surface uh, in terms of the type of racism uh, that is there. And, and for so long, uh, black people, Black Lives Movement was telling us about this, uh, but people chose to, to, to turn a blind eye. And, 
the best case, they thought that uh, they were exaggerating or making things up uh, uh, that, that weren't there. Uh, but I think at the very least, this has opened the eyes of uh, uh, a large part of the white community and, and others uh, that this is a very serious problem, that there is still deep racism, uh, and that we have to, to tackle it. Now, how much concrete action comes out of it remains to be seen. I mean, my fear is that we're going to get some watered-down version of Senate bill asking for more data collection and, you know, more de-escalatory techniques and not really get to the root of these problems. And I, I think it's really calls for systemic change. Maine in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, uh, ask about, you know, the change of, of, of the government itself. You, uh, instead of uh, always uh, uh, pleasing the, the, the 5 or 3%, like they say, that, uh, from what I understand, three people, three people have more money than over half the uh, uh, people in America. What I see, we have to change this capitalistic system to where it's, it's not anymore where it's uh, money over people, but people over money. What do you think about that? Well, man, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the three people, Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, and Jeff Bezos, my understanding is that their net worth is more than 50% of uh, uh, Americans. And as Tom knows, because we've talked about it all on, on offline, I've called for a framework of, of progressive capitalism, which says that you can't have the concentration of economic wealth in that way and underinvest in uh, people's health and their education and their housing that allows them a fair shot at the American dream. It's important to realize one central fact. Uh, we are a low-tax nation. This is not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. The OECD does a study every year. We are 33 out of 36 in terms of our tax. It's 24% of GDP. Uh, the mean in OECD nations is about 34 to 35%. So we can easily afford to tax our billionaires or multimillionaires more to pay for everyone else's uh, getting a fair shot. And, and that's what we need to do as a nation. David in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. Oh, thank How about you for taking the break. Quick one, please. Thank you. Okay, my my point. Now I'm in Tulsa. This is the home of the largest race riot in, and actually we call it a race massacre now. Uh, but my subject is: there's not going to be any. We can't have any equality if we don't have social economic equality. Well, David is absolutely uh, right. I mean, it, it, ironically, because he's calling for Tulsa. I mean, that was what Tulsa was all about in 1921. I mean, the African American community had created economic success. Uh, and it's important to realize that economic success is not sufficient because they created economic success and it's right was because of resentment. The, the white community did not want uh, to see the economic success of the African-American community. They couldn't accept the fact that the African-American community was succeeding in a way that they weren't. So race is very much a part of it, uh, but race cannot be disentangled from the economics. And when you look at the fact that blacks have one-tenth the wealth of whites, that uh, black uh, have far less likelihood of getting a credential post high school, far less health care. We, we have to create economic equity as well. Hey, we have a brand new video up at uh, TomHartman.com. And this one's about national health insurance and why and how we really need a single payer national health care system, whether you call it Medicare for all 
or you call it single payer or you call it whatever. You know, Medicare for all, it has a lot of appeal because generally speaking, Medicare is positively viewed. That's what they call it in Canada. It's called Medicare. And, you know, which makes sense. Care for people using medicine. We would save at least $150 billion a year just on billing. You've got hospitals in the United States that have entire floors devoted to billing. Hospitals in Canada have one desk with, you know, one or two people sitting at that desk handling the billing. It's just crazy. And people would get better care. They get more comprehensive care. Our entire nation gets healthier. And there's a whole bunch of essentially bullet points to build this argument for Medicare for all over at TomHartman.com. You can check it out right now. Welcome back. Congressman Mirokan is with us for the hour, taking your calls in our national town hall meeting here. And Kelvin in Birmingham, Alabama. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Hello, uh, Reverend. Uh, I almost called you Reverend Connor. <laughs> uh, Representative Connor and Tom. Why do we hey, still Kelvin. vote on a civil uh, a voting right act? That's my Why don't we vote on a new voting rights act? We, we, we definitely need one, especially after the Roberts Court gutted it. We have passed it, uh, a lot of the protections in H.R. 1. It's the first thing that Congress did this cycle, but it's dead on arrival in the Senate. And so what we need is a, a, a change in the Senate to, to, to be able to pass it. But uh, just to put this bluntly, I mean, the Republicans understand that if we had a Voting Rights Act and if, we, if you didn't have automatic disqualification of people and, and deregistration of people if you didn't close polling places, that would make them it much, much harder for them to win elections, and that's why they're resisting. Pam in Fort Collins, Colorado. You're on the Earth, Congressman Connor. Hey, Tom, a longtime big fan of yours and yours as well, Congressman. Thank you for taking my call. Congressman, do you and or maybe you and the Democrats can promise the American people that you'll put some mechanisms in place to stop a future fascist wannabe president? <laughs> we seem to have a lot of norms, but no laws to really check the executive branch. Tom read about Tom Cotton having aspirations in 2024 to become the next fascist potential president. And we need to have strong laws to check the executive branch. Is the Democratic Party doing anything? And if not, can you promise the American people you will to protect our government in the future? Sam, I think it's a brilliant point. I mean, what Trump has exposed is all of the weaknesses in our system that so much of uh, how government operated was based on norms. And if you had someone in there who really didn't believe in those norms, the, the havoc they could wreck. I mean, the idea that you could have a president declare out peaceful protesters and then advocate for the military to be used against his own people, his own the people who are protesting peacefully. I mean, that defines sort of the uh, essence of American democracy. And yet that's what the president did. And you're right to point out that that's what Tom Cotton and that New York Times piece uh, defended. And so it's not just Trump, it's Trumpism. And he has uh, many disciples who are going to continue, unfortunately, that uh, strand of thinking uh, long after he's gone. Uh, so what we need to do is strengthen the oversight laws, strengthen the checks on the presidency, and make sure that we change some of the laws with much harsher consequences. To do that, though, we have to win a presidential election and win back enough seats in the Senate. We're doing that in the House, but the challenge is you still need a president to sign those laws and a Senate to, to pass it uh, to make that change. Tim in St. Cloud, Minnesota, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hello, Mr. Tom Hartman. Thank, thank you for taking my call, and thank you very much, Representative Rokana. I have a question for you, Mr. Rokana. 
what would it look like if progressives were to take over the Congress? Tim, it's a great question. I think what it would look like is we'd actually get legislation that's popular with the American people. You would get Medicare for all. You would get $15 minimum wage passed. You would get free public college. You would get relief on student loans. You would have a Green New Deal, a bold legislation to have renewable energy and energy storage and new green jobs across this country. You would have high-speed broadband. You would have the things that would improve people's lives. James in Hollywood, California. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, Tom. And Congressman, the Republicans beat our butts in campaigning and, and theatrics. Here's something that Democrats must do. Just pass. You can write it up. Two sentences. A standalone $10 billion bill to save the post office. Put it up for a vote. Record every vote. The bill becomes the campaign ad, and then a standalone vote-by-mail absentee and record the votes and march it over to the Senate and make Mitch McConnell take it up. Or every day, uh, make news about it. What say you, Congressman? Well, I I take your criticism that uh, we keep saying Mitch McConnell isn't doing anything, and, and that's the truth. We have about 200 bills that are lying on his desk, but maybe there is a theatrical way to get that point across that, uh, you know, take a a bill which would give $2,000 to every American and say, look, it's McConnell that's the problem or on gun safety. I hear your point, and I think that we have to find a better way of dramatizing the problem. Triple T in Chicago. You're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Good afternoon. Where you guys are? A couple things I want to lead into with the solution that must be generated. We've got to come up with a solution for the ills of our society, which is 400 years old. In 1924, uh, Senator Durant had his famous Shut the Door speech. Ten years later, um, Governor Hewitt Long from the same state had his Every Man and King speech. And we see what I see, and, and, and what I see is a system that manipulates people who are oppressed, people who are trying to pull themselves up into a level of human decency being exploited. We see the identification of the problem. Uh, Hugh P. Long said we got 12 men and 120 million people in the country at the time and 12 men own more wealth than these 120 million people. Where are we today? We're in the exact same place, if not worse. It's, it's no different from Martin Luther King saying, this is the most violent nation on the planet, and here we are 55, 50 years later, we're still the most violent nation on the planet. Now, Eli Whistle... So what's your question, Triple T? We've got, we got a minute and a half here. What's your question? My question is, my question is justice... It's not just retributive, it's restorative. If there's going to be justice in this country and we can be the leaders of the world that we want to be, how will it take place without reparations? Restorative justice is the foundation of reparations. There's an H.R. 40 bill that's very watered down and inconsequential because we don't need a study 
the study is for people whose racism prevents them from seeing what justice is. Why have no Democrats, the Democrats control the House, why have you never presented the vote for presented the bill for a vote and put the pressure on the races who would dare block it. What is the reason that that has not taken place, um, Representative Connor? I'd like to know. Thank you. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that uh, we need restorative justice. Uh, reparations has to be part of restorative justice. As I was talking about in an earlier part of the show, it is naive to assume that a 50-year tradition of civil rights from the 60s on is going to be sufficient to uh, erase the inequities of 350 years plus of uh, oppression and, and that somehow that that would stamp out uh, uh, racism. And the statistics show that it hasn't. One in ten dollars uh, for a black family compared to a white family. So we need reparations. And the question of the commission, which I've supported, H.R. 40, is well, what form should these reparations take? I mean, should it be to HBCUs? Should it be to community health centers? Should it be for baby bonds to, to, to eliminate racial disparity in wealth? And that is, I think, what we have to work out. Or direct payments to people? That, I think that's on the, uh, on the table. I think that that's a harder, uh, harder issue. And my view is that you can probably get better political consensus for targeting African-American communities and providing massive resources uh, in a form of reparation. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hey, good morning, Tom and Congressman Kana. Thanks for take, for the town hall and best well wishes to you both. Congressman Kana, if uh, Trump's only plan to get reelected was to keep sowing the seeds of racial division, it's losing steam really quickly. Along with the massive street protests, in just the last two days, he's lost the NFL, NASCAR, and some big names in country music. And furthermore, I don't think he wants to run for re-election during a second Great Depression, which we're arguably on the brink of. So, Congressman Kana, do you think he and McConnell will have to come back to the bargaining table? And if so, will that not give uh, progressives uh, as yourself, like yourself, the leverage to insert three key provisions uh, that'll keep people afloat and save the economy? A, Pramila Jayapal's Paycheck Recovery Act, B, your plan for 2000 a month direct payments to all Americans, and C, Bernie's expansion of Medicare to to all uninsured and underinsured people. And finally, Congressman Khanna, can the House impeach the EPA chief, Andrew Wheeler, for defying the court order banning the herbicide uh, dicampa? Hmm. all excellent points. I agree with you that McConnell and Trump are going to have to come back to Congress especially when you look at what happened to the market, when you look at what the Fed has said in terms of the slow recovery. You know, I was talking uh, to, to several senators who said they don't know what's in their own self-interest. I mean, so we're going to have an opportunity. Now, I want to be candid with you. The progressive goals didn't even make it out of the House into the HEROES Act, so we didn't have enough support from Democrats to get Pamela J. Powell's Paycheck 
protection bill to get my $2,000 bill to get Bernie Sanders expansion of Medicare bill. So uh, I, I don't want to give false hope that that's going to be part of the plan. I do think we can get uh, funding to states and localities. And I think ultimately we have to have a more progressive Congress. And I agree with you on impeaching the EPA chief. We ought to do it. We ought to have done that a long time ago. Tony in Puyallup. Tell me how to pronounce this town, Tony, in Washington state. Yeah, I'm in Puyallup or, or South Hill. South Hill Puyallup. is fine. Uh, I'm a the mother of uh, six black children. I'm Caucasian, but I have six black, three three biological and three stepchildren. They're all grown now, but I'm 79 years old, so I haven't been doing much, you know, in terms of what's going on. But I, I'm, I just, I don't care how old I might got to do some this weekend. I'm going up to Seattle where a lot of those young people are out there protesting. And I have made up cards with the uh, print, printed out uh, the number that you call for your Congress person in uh, Washington and also the uh, King County uh, Democratic um, uh, Committee. And I'm going to encourage these kids to call that number. But I want to know, to me, the most important thing right now is voting. We've got to, we've got to vote we got to get try to get the vote out to get Tony. We're running out of time. What's your question for the congressman? What's the best thing I should say to these kids up there that are doing these demonstrations so they can put their energy toward getting uh, votes? And what should they say when they call the congressman? Great, thank you, Tony. I appreciate that. I mean, I I, I think there has to be partly the ability for people to demonstrate and and uh, engage on their own terms. And uh, right now, from the young people I talk to, there's so much anger. There's so much. Uh, uh, hurt that uh, you know, just telling them to go vote, I don't think is uh, is is enough. I think we have to show them concretely why voting is going to lead to X, Y, and Z. So what I would say is, here are the three, four things that uh, Congress has proposed. Uh, if you want to see that happen, here's why you need to vote. And I think we have to always link voting with seeing systematic change, so that young people don't feel that uh, voting is uh, not going to make a difference. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that Chief Justice John Roberts, back when he worked for Ronald Reagan, came up with a way that Congress and the White House could get around the Supreme Court? Specifically, they were trying to blow up uh, Roe v. Wade and Brown v. Board. But it could be used by Democrats right now. It's fascinating. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Welcome back. Congressman Ro Khanna taking your calls for the hour. Clay in Vicksburg, Mississippi. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi there. I wonder about Mitch McConnell. It seems just kind of ridiculous to me that one person has so much power and ability to control what gets voted on in the, you know, gets the legislation that can get through. Is there a way to split that up among multiple people or somehow limit that power so that people, we can actually get some things, you know, voted on? Thank you. You know, look, I I blame Mitch McConnell for in shorthand, but the reality is he's just a symbol for the Republican Party. And Mitch McConnell can do that and block that because that's what the Republicans want. When you look at the polls, the polls that have the president down at 39, 40%, his Republican approval rating is still in the high 80s or low 90s. And so the point is that uh, there is an energized Republican base that's not enough to win a general election, but is enough to win Republican primaries. And they really have a huge uh, stranglehold on 
McConnell's politics. So the only way I think around that is to win back control. I mean, it's you're not going to have this Republican Party do anything constructive on these issues. Lowell in Salem, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Khan. I see that the free trade wing of the Democratic Party has won this election, or won the primary, and free trade extracts wealth from the country, but it, it exposes us all to diseases. I was wondering if in the next free trade agreement we can attach on a global health care system that the corporations that extract money from us have to pay for. Well, it's a good point about the consequences of free trade that doesn't have environmental safeguards, that doesn't have public health safeguards, that doesn't have labor safeguards. The wing of the party that's progressive has never been opposed to, to trade. We have said that we have to have trade done in a way that's going to be in the benefit of workers, in the benefit of the environment, in the benefit of society. Uh, and I definitely think public health ought to be part of the new uh, trade paradigm. So you raise a very good point. Troy in Brooklyn, New York, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. How you doing? Question I have, in 2016, Georgia had a problem trying to get the voter match. They submitted to the Supreme Court. It wasn't enough time. The Dakotas, I think, happened. They changed the IDs. They didn't have enough time to the point where the machines were getting burnt out. Now it happened again in Georgia. What is the issue that's holding back the problem with voter suppression? Is it legislative or is it that we're just not acting in enough time? Because no matter how many people we get to come out to vote, if they're able to do this, we have no, we have no way to stand forward. The point, I think, is not just legislative. The legislation would help enforce civil rights for voting. The point is that you have uh, people like Kemp, the governor and the secretary of state, who have a direct self-interest in making sure that certain people don't vote. Look, Stacey Abrams would have been governor of Georgia if black people had been fairly allowed to vote. And for all her efforts of registering, I think she's registered 700,000 new people down in Georgia, we've seen that the system of power can suppress that and make things very difficult. And so it is a fight because of entrenched power that doesn't want to see certain people vote. Jerry in St. Peter's, Missouri, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Representative Khanna, quick question. If in November the Democrats take over the White House and the Senate, is there a will to increase the number of judges on the Supreme Court? Jerry, I think that that will be looked at. You know, there are different uh, proposals in how to do that and how to do that in a way that preserves the judicial independence. But I think what will probably be a trigger is if you start to get policy that's passed that's clearly constitutional, and if you have partisan judges striking down things in partisan ways, I think that would create the impetus for structural reform, much like, you know, it did in, in FDR's time. Kurt from Beverly Hills, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hi, good morning, uh, Mr. Hartman and Mr. Khanna. How are you guys doing? Good. My question is, is there any way Congress can pass some type of no-qualify no refi program for homeowners or businesses so they can consolidate their debt? Because I've been asked, as of June 1st, I'm still on a non-essential business list, so I cannot work or operate my business. But my credit card companies are still charging me anywhere from 20 to 30% interest on the uh, outstanding uh, balances and just creating a bubble along with my mortgage. They're looking to give me six months uh, forbearance, but in six months, they're going to be looking for six times my monthly rent. I'm sorry, my monthly mortgage. They're building a bubble. And unless I can refi, 
without having to explain why I haven't worked for six months, I won't be able to refinance my property to even pay off my credit card. So is there something they can Kurt, do? Let's get the answer. We're down, to, we're down to 30 seconds here. So let's get the answer. Kurt, Kurt I sympathize with you. I've heard this story again and again. It's wrong. It's unfair. We have a bill that would disallow credit card companies to be charging these outrageous interest rates during this crisis. And I think we ought to have the Fed helping homeowners like you infusing money into banks to help refinance mortgages, just like the Fed has bailed out uh, corporations and is bailing out Wall Street banks. I mean, this was a problem in 2008. So we have money to print when it comes to our financial institutions, but somehow we don't have money to print even in low inflationary environments when it comes to helping ordinary people like you. So there are bills there that the progressives are pushing, and I'm sorry that uh, we haven't had action in the Senate to, to help people like you. Congressman Khanna, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's always great talking with you. Our, our listeners really appreciate the, your willingness to come on and do these town halls with us. Thank you. I love it, Tom. It seems like time always flies by. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter One. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. 
Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away, across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more, while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with the reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 